Well, as I mentioned a number of weeks ago, we are embarking, beginning today, on a journey through the book of Acts. I know for some of you that's been good news and it's been exciting to think about. Um, I'm going to dull that excitement a bit by telling you that I'm going to preach an introduction to the book of Acts today. And I realize in saying that, that oftentimes there is this giant collective sigh. Because you, like I, never read a preface to a book in your life. I know that. And frankly, I share your sentiment. I really do. I, just give me the text. Let's just roll. One, one, let's get started. Trust me, you do not want a pastor to start a text without spending time understanding the who, what, where, when, and why. Now, is it necessary to let you in on all of that? I could, as I did in Philippians, let you in along the way. We certainly could do that. But I really do think it's important today that, that we do this. And so I realize that for some of you, you'll be there today, and it's a little bit like taking a flight for a vacation. You are anxious to get off the tarmac and to get this thing in the air and to get on your way. And here I stand like a flight attendant with my belt buckles and inflatable flotation devices saying to you, buckle up, I've got a number of things I need to say to you before we get wheels up. So I do want to give you a general introduction this morning. It is, it is good for us to understand where we're starting. It's good for us to understand where we're heading. It's good for, under, for us to understand why we're even going there. So, some of you have asked, why the book of Acts? That's a good question. And as it is the prerogative of any woman to change her mind, it is the prerogative of the preacher to choose his book. And <laughs> I'll never forget reading Spurgeon, who, who vigorously defended his right to choose the text. And I can't quote it exactly, but I choose what I preach and when I preach. And I, I just remember kind of being stunned reading that. What was interesting about Sturgeon, or Spurgeon was that his, his counsel to preachers was, look, if people protest, then preach the same text the next week. <laughs> Don't make me preach this twice. <laughs> Believe it or not, most preachers have a reason why, humanly speaking, we choose what we choose to preach. A particular text or a particular book of the Bible, we go about it prayerfully and thoughtfully and so this morning, I want to just answer this question, why the book of Acts? I want to give you five reasons as to why I think it's important for us at this time to encounter this book. Let's pray before we consider these things. Our Father, it is with great joy that we come to the conclusion of a book and treasure it up in our hearts as we have with the book of Ephesians, then Philippians, and now, Lord, we come to this great treatise, this great book recording your might and your power, moving forth your promises and your purposes in this earth. And I, I ask, Lord, that you would do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think, that you would transcend any hope that we ever had for the value of all that we might glean through these things. Lord, surprise us, delight us, cause us again to, to well up with joy at your word, to tremble, to come before it with humility of heart and a willingness to learn and to do. And I do pray, Lord, that you would shape us individually and corporately through these things, conforming us to the image of Christ and leading us forth in that well-trodden path of faithfulness that you have led your people in. Teach us, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I think there are five things that this action-packed book is going to help us with. And number one among them, I want to say that this text, I believe, will edify the church. It will edify the church. We just finished Ephesians and Philippians, and those books were great books to encounter and to consider the church in particular and all that God is doing in her church and the central 
place of the church in God's program. And those books spoke a lot about our salvation and about doctrinally all the things that God accomplished through Christ on our behalf and all the manifold blessings that we receive in him. Those books spoke a lot about unity, didn't they? And how we're to function among one another. The church is about relationship, and those books were about how to carry forward our relationship and the peace that was established through the blood of Christ toward one another. And we've rejoiced in those things. Acts is going to give us a different picture. Acts is going to show us those very same things, but in a very practical way as they're worked out in the early church, not just inwardly, but outwardly by way of engagement with the mission of God in the world. And I really think you cannot be exposed at any kind of depth to the life and ministry of the early church without catching something of their joy and gladness as the people of God. Their enthusiasm for being disciples of Christ. This book should cause us to delight still more in God's good gift of the church. Secondly, this book will articulate our mission. Acts is a book that reveals that the church has been given a commission by God. It is very plain in the book. We see it being worked out in the book. Acts is about a church and about a gospel that is on the move. There is no grass growing under the first century church's feet. They're out and they're up and they're moving and they're fulfilling all the things that have been prophesied in the Old Testament. They have a mission, they know precisely what it is, and they're all about it. They're getting after it. And as we've said many times, we have not been saved so that we might simply fling up the feet of the lazy boy and ride this thing out until Jesus comes and plucks us out. We have been saved so that we might serve. We have been called with a purpose. This book will articulate that mission very, very clearly. And it will help us have constancy of purpose as a church. This is forever on my heart, forever on the heart of your elders, that we would be a church that fulfills the mission that God has given to us. Number three, why preach this book? Because it will fortify our faith. In other words, it will embolden us. I got in trouble last time when I said to you men, this is the, 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 the thing my dad used to say to me continually, this is the kind of book that will put hair on your chest. This is a book that will put steel in your spine. This is a book that will make you stand firm and strong in the faith. I don't know if you've noticed, but my guess is you have, that the times they are a-changing, aren't they? We are in a post-Christian America. That's not even debatable. And the winds of persecution are intensifying. And again, there is a deep pastoral burden in the heart of your shepherds that you be forewarned so that you would be forearmed to stand firm and to strive forward and to suffer together. Acts is a book about a church that stood firm, strove together, and suffered together for the faith. It is of great concern to me for my own life, let alone the life of the church, that we be prepared in advance for the days ahead. We see it around us. We see it in the neighbors to the north. Those winds are blowing, and things are going to be challenging. And the question is, how is it that you and I would respond? We need to be ready to respond and to respond well to these challenges. The church in America has been awfully soft for a long, long time, and I think probably softer than I know. And I'm referring to myself. I'm, I don't even know how I'll do in the midst of it. I have confidence in Christ, but I also remember a guy by the name of Peter. You remember him? 
even if I have to die with you. We need to be strengthened. We need to remember that Christ has called us to a battleship, not a cruise ship. You'll remember the words of 1 Peter, for this you have been called. Really, what? What's my calling? Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps. You'll recall from Philippians the double grace, the double gift from Philippians 1.29, for to you, church, it has been granted for Christ's sake. What? What's the gift? Well, one, to believe on him. Praise God. Thank the Lord for that. We have received the gift of salvation, free grace of God given to us as a gift, not by works. It's been granted to us that we would believe in him, but also, secondly, to suffer for his name's sake. The words of Paul in 2 Timothy 3.12, there will be persecution for all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Beloved, we walk in long-trodden paths. It is a deep trail, and it's been pounded and packed. There have been many, many who have gone before us faithfully. They have suffered faithfully for the cause of Christ. Many at the cost of their lives. That kind of thing could be coming to our neck of the woods very quickly. And we see the faithfulness of the early church and it should strengthen us and motivate us to stand and to stand together. It should stir us, not to cause us to back away for fear that we might lose something that's precious, but it ought to drive us forward in the likeness of the early church to proclaim that and him who is precious to us, that we would follow in his footsteps. Number four, preaching the book of Acts will clarify our doctrine. It will clarify our doctrine. This book is replete with numerous misconceptions in the minds of many people. Lots of people would look at the book of Acts and they would say, well, I, I know what the book of Acts is. It's, it's merely a history of what happened to the early church. A bunch of sort of loosely compiled events. This happened, and then after that happened, well, this happened, and then after that, well, here's in another place, this happened. As if somehow those things have all just been strung out there like a newspaper reporter might write for the morning news. You know, Paul, he, he was just traveling and he went from this city to this city and the real point of all of that is just to see that you can be a rolling stone for Jesus if you want. You can travel the world in Jesus' name. That's not the point. And, and, and Luke has a point. And that's a point. I'm trying to drive home with you today, and I will over and over and over again. Another misconception is that Jesus really isn't central to the book of Acts. That somehow we left Jesus in John, and now we're going to go to Acts and catch this little brief historical documentary about the church, and then somehow we'll get on to the stuff that really matters back here you know, in, in Romans and the other epistles where we're told what we can do so that we can make God pleased with us. That's not right. You get that. Some of you are staring at me like, what did he just say? Right. But that is a general misconception that exists is that Jesus somehow has nothing to do with the book of Acts. And again, I, I, I will tell you this, that by the end of the morning you'll see that that is not so. Nothing could be further from the truth. Some look at the book of Acts and say, well, you know, it's really a book on missions. That's the reason that Acts exists, is so that the church would understand the mission of the church and therefore know how to do missions. Obviously, there's a lot in the book about missions and evangelism and the purpose of the church, but the book has many, many things to add beyond that scope. One of the great misconceptions of the church is that Acts is normative. 
for the church today. That everything we see happening in the book of Acts should be, or at least could be, happening at FDF. What was happening then should be happening now. The charismatics would argue that we should be speaking in tongues, that we should be receiving a word from the Lord, that we should encounter a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, that that's normative for the church. The Pentecostals would seek to persuade us that if we only had sufficient faith, we could see the kinds of signs and wonders that were manifest in the first century, that we could raise the dead, we could heal the sick, we could cast out demons. And then when people saw that kind of power, in the words of John Wimber, we could exercise some power evangelism. The world would see those signs and they would surely believe. You could look at something like the home church movement, which would tell us that that we ought to be meeting in homes. And the reason we ought to be meeting in homes is that that's what they were doing in the book of Acts. If you want to know what the problem of the institutional church in America is, it's just that we're meeting in buildings like this. We should be at home. Are those things true? Should we make distinctions in the book of Acts between those things that are prescriptive or prescribed for us and those things that are descriptive or describe what was happening then? You can wrestle with that tonight at your home fellowship group. And beyond that, how do we even determine whether these things should be uh, uh, practiced and applied in the church today or whether they were unique to that first century church? How How do we determine that? We'll consider that. So it will clarify our doctrine. Number five, it will inflame our worship. This is a book, the book of Acts is a book that magnifies the sovereignty of God who has established and is establishing, to use the word that Charles used this morning, he is forwarding his kingdom in this world. It's a book about the ongoing work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the life of his people, extending grace to sinners. We're going to watch the Lord work. You go, wait a minute. He's risen. And by the end of the first half of the first chapter, we're going to see him ascend back into heaven. Are you telling me that Jesus is working from heaven to accomplish his purposes on earth? Acts says, Absolutely. We don't want to miss that. This book is uniquely displaying the glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we see the Father, God in his sovereignty. We see Jesus working and laboring. And we see that labor working through the Holy Spirit, who's mentioned more than 50 times in this book. This book is centered on our triune God. He is glorious and he is good and Acts wants us to know he is ultimately active in this world. And as we see that unfolding, undoubtedly we will be worshiping often as God providentially directs and accomplishes all of his good pleasure and nothing and nobody can stand in the way of what he is doing. So this is why We're going to go through the book of Acts. It will edify and enrich your life individually. And as that happens, it will edify and enrich this body corporately. Uh, It will articulate your mission in this life, the very purpose of your life. It will fortify your faith. It will make you strong and courageous. It will clarify your doctrine. It will keep you from a host of errors. And then you will be equipped to both teach those under your care and rescue some who are trapped in, uh, in, in, in practices and in theology and doctrine that is errant. Fifthly, it will inflame your worship. God will be bigger and greater and more to you than he is this morning. That is the promise of this book. Well, let me give you by way of general overview 
what is the book of Acts? I had read in your hearing this morning Luke chapter 24, the whole of it. That was very intentional because we sometimes get on the other side of Easter and they say, there, there, it's done. He's up and out of the tomb. That wasn't the end of things, my friends. <laughs> Not even close. And so what, what we will see here is that the book of Acts even as we look at the first couple of verses here in a minute, you're going to see that the book of Acts sweeps up right on the heels of Luke 24. And there's a reason for that, because you can think of the book of Acts as Luke, volume 2. It's written as a sequel to Luke's gospel account. And prior to the rearrangement of, of the New Testament books, where all of the synoptic gospels were compiled together, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Then John was wedged in there, and somehow Luke was separated by a, a rather long book from Acts. And now people, even though we know that Luke wrote them both, we don't see them as knit together. They're intimately knit together. That will become crystal clear to you. This is Luke volume 2. It is the third longest book in the New Testament behind Matthew and Luke, which is the longest. So you take Luke and you take Acts and you knit them together. That comprises over one-fourth of the New Testament. And Luke spans a period of about 30 years of the church's existence. And so if you look to the front of your the book of Acts, what you will find at the top is a title that has been traditionally entitled the Acts of who? The Acts of the Apostles. Many have suggested, in, and rightfully in reading the book of Acts, that really this ought to be dubbed the Acts of the Holy Spirit because everything that was ever done for the good of the kingdom of God by the apostles was done in the power and the direction of the Holy Spirit. F.F. Bruce was not comfortable with that title, so he recommended the Acts of the Risen Jesus because he wanted to back it further to say, well, it is true that the apostles do what the Spirit leads them to do, but the Spirit was sent from Jesus. So you've got to back this off yet another round. John Stott came forward and one-upped Bruce by saying the title ought to be the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his spirit through the apostles. Daryl Bach can go one more. Daryl Bach wasn't comfortable with the idea that this thing stopped with the work of the apostles because the work of the apostles was then followed by the work of the church and therefore Bach came up with this. The acts of the sovereign God through the Lord Messiah Jesus by his spirit on behalf of the way. Whew. Okay, now that's ponderous. But you can appreciate, can't you, what these men are trying to do? The dynamic of this book is not merely, at a human level, the acts of the apostles. You can see how that sort of is a deflated balloon, right? That thing just... It's not only about the working of God either. It's a both end. You see Christ acting. You see the Holy Spirit working. You see the apostles in motion. You see the church set up on its feet and now going out to take the gospel to the end of the known world. Look down at Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. The first account, O Theophilus, I composed about all that... Note this, underline this, don't miss this. The first account of Theophilus I composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Gospel of Luke. That first account, I started to talk about all that Jesus 
began to do and teach. The assumption is that when you begin something, you're going to continue to do that thing and knowing that God is faithful to bring to completion all that he starts. He's a finisher. This is a book that continues to reveal the work of God in his son and by his spirit and through his church in this world. That excites me. I don't know if it excites you, but for everyone who wanted to say, oh yeah, we left Jesus in the, in the gospels, didn't we? Verse one, all about Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Do you see how all of this is tied together and why these men are wrestling through this idea of how do I encapsulate all of this? And I really do think Stott captured it best. It is the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his Spirit through the apostles. This book is very Christocentric. Don't be deceived. It's all about what Jesus does and teaches. He is a living and reigning king. And he is alive, and Luke wants us to know it. He is working to build his church. He is still saving and sanctifying, and he is going to, in the end, return to judge the living and the dead. This is not your typical religious movement where some prominent leader starts a movement and he has some sort of charisma and then he dies and then a bunch of people are groupies and they come in behind him and they try to carry the flag for their deceased leader. That is not what Christianity is. Luke is crystal clear. Our Christ lives. We have a living head. We are his body. Jesus is still doing, still teaching, still building, still carrying redemption forward to a glorious end. And he's doing it by his spirit and he is doing it through his church of which you, if you are in Christ, are a part. And so this book is for you. God's sovereign purposes are moving down the track like a freight train, just as he planned from eternity past, and there is no one and there is nothing, there is no power in heaven or on earth or under the earth that can stop him, that can derail that train. God is active in this world. Who's the author of the book of Acts? Well, as you're aware, it was Luke, who was a physician by profession, in Colossians 4.14, Paul refers to him as Luke, the beloved physician. And as you might imagine, a beloved physician, I've had a couple of physicians who weren't so good, and I probably wouldn't have described them that way, but Paul loved Luke and was grateful for Luke, and perhaps Luke served even as his personal physician at times during Paul's ministry. But physicians are well-educated, and Luke has great skill as an author. He's got very lofty command and superiority of command of the Greek language. He's got the broadest vocabulary of any, any book in the New Testament. He's a very careful researcher and a historian, and though he is a Gentile, he's got a firm grasp on Judaism and the Old Testament scripture. Luke was not a first-hand witness to Jesus' ministry. He became closely associated with the disciples, with the apostles, uh, after Christ had died, sometime around the, the time of the death and resurrection of Christ. And so Luke becomes really a second-generation convert, and sometimes uh, a com companion with Paul, and so we'll see as we move through the book of Acts, there are a number of we statements. In other words, Luke was with Paul and encountered a number of things as an eyewitness. Other events in this book he picks up by way of face-to-face -face interview with the leaders of the church of Jerusalem or other Christians 
with Peter. Why did Luke write? Well, flip back to the first chapter of Luke. We'll just look at what, as he explains it, why he was writing. Luke 1, verse 1. He refers to the other gospel writers in verse 1. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, note the emphasis there on fulfillment, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, it seemed fitting. So Luke says, in, in light of the gospels, in light of those things that were revealed to God's servants, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus. We'll talk about Theophilus next week. Notice this though, so that you may know the certainty about the things that you have been taught. In all likelihood, Theophilus was a believer, and Luke is looking to reinforce the things he has taught, he has been taught and he believed. And he wanted to put it down in an orderly fashion. And it couldn't stop at the end of Luke. He, he needed to continue in Luke volume 2 here to, to, toward that purpose of making these things clear and laying them out in an orderly fashion. And so he, he turns to all that Jesus began to, to say and to do in the book of Luke, he turns then in Acts to continue to say and to do and to accomplish by the Spirit and through his church. We don't know for certain when the book of Luke was written, but we get a good clue at the end of chapter 28, and it's really an argument from silence, but Luke abruptly ends the book of Acts with the apostle Paul right where he was when we were listening to Paul through the book of Philippians. You remember where he was? He was on house arrest, and he had, was writing the prison epistles, and Luke was his sometime companion there. You remember he had the opportunity to, to have visitors in and interact with them. And so Luke was a close companion of Paul, and he certainly follows Paul's life very carefully throughout the book of Acts, particularly as we get to chapter 13 and on. And it just seems very, very unlikely Remember, Paul was awaiting trial. He didn't know if he was going to make it out with his head attached to his body or not. He said he thought that he would. He was confident of his deliverance, but whether in life or death, Christ was everything to him, and he was content to follow the Lord's lead. Well, you would think, wouldn't you, that Luke would say something about the outcome of that trial if Paul had lived or died or what happened next, there, there, there's none of that at the end of the book of Acts. We just end up with Paul in prison. That's where the story ends. And if, if we consider the fact that there's no discussion in Acts about the persecution of Nero, which began in AD 64, if we think about the fact of the fall of Jerusalem, the sacking of Jerusalem in AD 70, and there's no mention of that either, those are significant historical details that Luke leaves out if somehow there's a later date for this book. I think it's very likely that the book closes simply with Paul still awaiting that trial that he was waiting for, and that would put the date somewhere around 62 to 64 AD. Now, what is Acts about? What is Acts about? What are we going to find as we progress through this book? And there are more things than we're going to list, but these are the major emphasis. Number one, we need to understand this, that the book is historical, the book is theological, and the book is practical. It is historical narrative. It is a, a documentary. Just like you might go watch a documentary on Netflix, there is a sense in which Acts is just a 
a documentary of the events of all that transpired from Christ's ascension into heaven on for about the next three decades. And it's unique in that sense in that it, it, it's, it's the only book that's really written that way in the New Testament. We have the four gospel accounts, but this is the only book that covers this section <coughs> excuse me, in history. Think about all that we would not know if we had the book of if we did not have the book of Acts. Think about what you would know about the early church, about what you would know about the giving of the Holy Spirit, about what you would know about the apostles, about what you would know about how the gospel spread or how missions worked. There are so many things that that we learn from Acts that then get picked up again in the epistles and are clarified for us. It's also a theological book. And here's what I mean by that. It's not just recording events, but those events are recorded in order to reveal the person and the work of God in those events. The invisible God that we cannot see, we can see in the things that are taught about him through the, the facts and the events and the progress of the book of Acts. We learn much about God through this book. Thirdly, it's practical, and that is we're going to learn a lot about the doctrine and practice of the early church, and as I said, we're going to consider carefully all that we should apply or perhaps does not apply to the church in the 21st century. This is also a book, not only historical, theological, and practical, but it is a book that emphasizes promise and fulfillment. We want to look for those themes as we go through. This is a significant emphasis by Luke. One commentator said, in Acts we find, and I like this, echoes of the Old Testament. You ever gone into a cave or someplace and you you shout into it and you can hear that echo repeated, 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 repeated. There is a sense as... As, as, as the kingdom is being forwarded through the book of Acts, those echoes keep coming back. Some have described this as a bridge book that connects the Old Testament to the New Testament. And that's right. We see the flowering of the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament now being fulfilled in the New. And therefore, really, again, think of it, as we see those things being fulfilled, what's the message? Is it just that it's said back here in Micah that he'd be born in Bethlehem, and we, we, we see then in the Gospels that he was born in Bethlehem. Is, is that just a neat fact? What's the message underneath that? What should we see that is invisible? The hand of God that fulfills the promises he makes, that he is a God who cannot lie, that he is a God who is powerful to accomplish all of his good purpose, that he is a God who is detailed about the things he says and he means what he says and he brings to pass what he says. Do you see how we get a snapshot then of the faithfulness of God who brings to pass everything he started back in the book of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. We see the suffering servant, we see the Messiah, we see the gift of the Holy Spirit we see the blessings that were promised to Abraham, in fact, going out beyond Abraham even to the nations. We see that this new movement called the way, what is later then called Christianity, this new movement is rooted deeply and inextricably in the old. Luke will mention the Abrahamic and the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants. So we see this thing that is emerging, it's blossoming, it's flowering out of Judaism. It's not independent from it, but it's grafted into this tree, this rich root, as Paul calls it. And so Christianity is the realization of the promises of God made long ago. There's another theme in this book, and that is that, that the book of Acts is a, is a book of transitions. Hang on to this. You need this. We're going to see it time and again. But much of the book of Acts is wrapped up in the movement from Judaism to Jesus, from, from particularly in, in demonstrating the fulfillment of Christ in his Messiahship, and then from the Old Covenant to the New, and from Israel's role as God's unique nation bearing his light and testimony. 
testimony to now the church comprised of both Jew and Gentile being that city set on a hill. We see in it the transition as Jesus passes the baton of his ministry to the apostles and then they pass it on to the elders of the church and then it is just continued to pass down so that we all might engage in the great work of God in this world. We see that salvation, which was primarily for the Jew in the Old Testament, there were a few proselytes that we see in Scripture, but this thing that was by and large for the Jew, now all of a sudden what? It's for everyone. We're seeing this great transition. This is so fundamental to our grasp and understanding and interpretation of the book of Acts. Daryl Bach says this, quote, In a sense, the theme of Acts is that salvation is for all because Jesus is Lord of all. A view that has roots in the program of God set forth through the sacred promises, end quote. And so we see this book of Acts as being this very critical link in, in the understanding and outworking of the kingdom of God and the plan of redemption, how God begins with a nation and then out to a people comprised of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It explains what God has done through his servant Jesus to reconcile all men to himself and then to one another in the church. And we see this great transition where Jew and Gentile are now reconciled and brought into relationship with one another through the indwelling spirit. Unbelievable. This is springtime, right? We love seeing those daffodils and those tulips come up and it's a reminder again that there is this, this life force which is the mighty hand of God in this planet, bringing season by season by season. And we see those flowers come up and they remind us again what was just a barren patch of dirt suddenly is this thing that you just want to capture and you cut it and you put it in the water and you get a couple of days and it's done to remind us again that this world is broken. Luke is, is writing so that we would see the book of Acts and all that's going on is it's there's life coming up and out in a whole new way as the promises of God flower. Acts is also a book about God's mission and the gospel message. That's related, of course, to all that I just said. But there is continuity between these promises of God revealed in the Old Testament, and we're seeing them realized in the New. And so all those promises made back in Genesis chapter 12 and, and 15 and 17 to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob, what? We see them going out and that blessing then going to the nations because in Abraham all nations will be blessed. This is a book about the inclusion of the Gentiles as God's people. And if anything is going to make you take a deep sigh, it should be that. Because you once were far off. You had no part in the life of God. You were hopeless in this world. This book should be a constant cause for joy as we see the gospel going to those who were formerly on the outside with their noses pressed against the window, wondering of what it must be like to have God as your God. Really what we see in the book of Acts is the unfolding of Paul's statement in Romans 11, or in Romans 1 when he says that the, that the gospel is for the, the Jew first, but also for the Gentile. We'll see that. Finally, the, the book of Acts records that the, the, the triumph of the gospel, and we, we cannot miss this, the triumph of the gospel in the face of opposition. We're going to see the triumph of the word, and I'm going to show this to you in your Bibles here in the minutes that we have remaining. We're going to see the triumph of the word progressing forward, and, and much of that is traced ge geographically. We're going to have to go back, sorry, but... Back to geography, Tom. What, what are we going to do? We've got to go back and see how this thing expands. 
Because that's part of the point that Luke is trying to make. And we will see that this triumph, of course, comes at a cost. Christ's victory and vindication comes through suffering, and so it is for the people of God. Christ is building his church, and nothing can stand against it, but there are a lot of things trying to stand against it, and oftentimes we get put in the middle of all of that. Christ will have the victory, and we'll get to see how that all unfolds as we think a little bit just briefly about the structure of the book. Let's wrap up right here, shall we? Hang in there. As I said, Luke is a super skilled writer. He is a very competent historian. He is a highly trained physician. He's careful about his research. He's careful about his observations. He's, he's very thoughtful and detailed as he interviews people. And in saying that, I want to say in the same breath that every book of the Bible is skillfully written. Don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying John was kind of careless and sloppy in the things that he wrote. Not at all. It doesn't really matter who the human author is, right? Because in the end, God is the ultimate author of Scripture. And Luke writes with a plan and a purpose. And we want to be looking for that as we go through this book. This is, we, we have a tendency to think about ourselves. And we think, you know, if I sat down to write 28 chapters about the life of Jesus, well, and we sort of reflect back to the way it was when we were sophomores in high school and we took that English composition class and we were too undisciplined to make an outline and therefore we were a little bit wonky and wandering as, as we sort of wrote what we thought and we, as we found we had very little to say, we increased the font size and, and we spaced it, triple space, and the only concern that was really ours was what? Just meet the requirement and get it in so that I can get a grade. I don't really care about what I wrote. And I know that's true for you because you don't have any of those papers. You threw them away a long time ago. This is not the way Luke wrote. There is not a wasted word in the book. He had an outline and a purpose and a plan. And he wrote intentionally under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So there's nothing errant. There's nothing untrue. There is no verbal clutter. You can take it verse by verse by verse. This is the word of God and therefore it is pure and perfect. Tried seven times. It is holy. And there is a promised blessing to each and every one of us who will give attention to the word, Proverbs 16, 20. We will find good. So he wrote with purpose and intention. Look at chapter 1 and verse 8. He records these words of our Lord. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And here are words that should still be echoing in your own head given the passage that was read earlier from Luke chapter 24. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. This is the outline of the book of Acts. It's a simple outline. And it looks at the progress and expansion of the kingdom of God and the progress of the gospel in concentric circles. It's going to begin here in Jerusalem and then it's going to go out, I told you geography, to Judea and Samaria. And then it's going to go out yet again even to the ends of the earth. So this is the framework. This is the outline And this is what we find precisely laid out in the book of Acts. Peter begins preaching. Where are they? They're in Jerusalem. Peter is preaching. We see thousands coming to Christ. And that preaching basically takes us up through chapter 7. Look over at chapter 8 and verse 1. Love the sound of that. That'll get your blood pumping. It's good for you. Chapter 8, verse 1, now Saul, 
We know him as Paul. This is pre-converted Paul. This is Paul chasing after the church. The church is in Jerusalem. The gospel is having progress. And all of a sudden we read these words. Now Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. You see what just happened? You've played pool and you've taken that cue ball and you've gone... God takes a cue ball of persecution and he takes a shot at that triangle church back at the other end of the table and he scatters it out to Judea and Samaria. Why there? Because the whole thing is going to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And if we were to go and look at Acts chapter 13 and following, what we would find is that it is going to the end of the earth. It's going to the very power center of the known world. We will end up in Rome. One more thing I want you to see. There are, or there is, I should say, in this letter, Luke has crafted six statements that serve really as progress reports. Did you get those in elementary school? I used to get them. Most were okay. Luke is going to give us progress reports throughout this gospel, and I want you to see them with me again, and then we will, we will wrap up. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, that's our first section, is from 1-1 to 6-7. If you look at chapter 6 and verse 7, note these words. Here's the first progress report. And the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem. And many of the priests, think of it, were becoming obedient to the faith. Then we go from 6.8 all the way to 9.31. Look at chapter 9 and verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, you see what's just happened again? Were ha was having peace, being built up, and they were going on in the fear of the Lord and in encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and they what? Continued to multiply. He gets his second quarter report card, and it's good. Look at chapter 12. 21. I'm sorry, verse 24. And the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. Look at chapter 16 and verse 5. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were abounding in number. How often? Daily, you see the growth. Let's close out with Acts chapter 28. In the final two verses of the book, we see Paul in prison. And Luke ends on this very positive note. A very realistic note in verse 24. Well, verse 23 when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging, note this, in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly bearing witness about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Paul was faithful, wasn't he? And some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others were not believing. And so Paul spoke to those who were not believing, told them why they ought to be. And then we read these words at the end in verse 30, that Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters on house arrest, right? 
in his own rented quarters and was welcoming, note this, all who came to him. You see the picture, more and more people still coming. And what was Paul doing? Well, he was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. And I love it. Look at the last word of this book, unhindered. Nobody stands to prevent God from accomplishing his ends. I was reminded of Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9 when he says to him, Remember the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the seed of David, according to my gospel, for which I endure hardship, even to chains as a criminal. Well, that looks pretty bad, Paul. Then Paul adds this, but the word of God has not been chained. Paul and Luke were walking lockstep. And Luke is going to deliberately walk us through the advancement and the dynamic growth of the kingdom of God. It is unstoppable. Jesus is still at work from his exalted position. And the word of God continues to expand and to triumph by the Spirit and through the apostles. That is really the thrust of the book of Acts. And I want to summarize it by just reading you a couple paragraphs from a professor by the name of Alan Thompson as he commentates it, it, or comments. It, it, is, it is summarizes this beautifully. He could have preached a shorter sermon. Listen, quote, God's plan of salvation is being carried out according to his promises through the continuing reign of the risen Lord Jesus. The inaugurated kingdom of God continues to be administered by the Lord Jesus. In this era of the kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus continues to add to his church to enable the spread of his word, to strengthen his people before the consummation of the kingdom at his return. His death and his resurrection mean that the blessings of the age to come are found in him even now. All who turn to Christ receive the blessings of forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's people may be assured that they will be enabled and transformed by the Spirit of Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the one who grants these gifts to Jew and Gentile alike. Thus, Gentiles are receiving God's salvation by the grace of the Lord Jesus through the hearing and believing of the same good news of forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus, not because God has failed to keep his word to Israel. God's people may be reassured then that God fulfills his promises through the acts of their Savior, the risen and reigning Christ. Let's pray as we as the music team comes forward. Our Lord, we praise you for your sovereign power. You have the right to reign. The world is yours and all that is within it. Lord, there is nothing on this planet or in the universe that does not have your name upon it. Even the devil is your devil. Lord, you have from eternity past set your decree in action and you have set it on a track and you have been chugging down that track throughout history and we see it as we, as we read from Genesis and all the way through the Older Testament and Lord, then we see it again in the Gospels furthered and it comes into sharper vision and then we thank you, Lord, for what we've seen today that that promise has never been stalled it's never been overcome it's never been blockaded you are powerful to accomplish all that you desire lord we praise you for your faithfulness to your promises we thank you for the promise that you gave us the giving of your son that whoever believes in him might have life and not perish we thank you for the life of christ in which we find our imputed righteousness we thank you for the death of christ in which we find the forgiveness of our sins we thank you for the resurrection of Christ which speaks to our justification and the accomplishment of all that you set out to do in your Messiah Lord we thank you for the ascension of Christ which speaks to our hope 
that we too will see you come again and that you will raise us even as you yourself are the first fruits of the resurrection. Lord, you are a God who cannot lie. You are a God who accomplishes your purposes. You are glorious and majestic. And Lord, there is nothing else that we would do but render our lives unto you as a living sacrifice. Help us to that end, we pray. Amen.